to defer to Senator Mark Wayne Mullen. Thank you, Ranking Member. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here. And I, I want to make a, a very clear, I'm not against unions. I'm not at all. Uh, some of my very good friends work for unions. Uh, they work hard and they do a good job. Um, and so my statements, please don't make uh, an assumption that I'm anti-union. But I also want to set the record straight. Because, see, I started with nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I started below nothing. And I started growing this little plumbing company with six employees to now we have over 300 employees. And back in 2009, you guys tried to unionize me. But because we started bidding jobs that were union jobs and winning those, union pipe fitters decided they were going to come after us. They would show up at my house. They'd be leaning up against my trucks. I'm not afraid of a physical confrontation. In fact, sometimes I look forward to it. I'm, that's not my problem. But when you're doing that to my employees, and then when, they, when that didn't work, they started picketing our job site, saying, shame on Mullen. Shame on Mullen. For what? Because we had better benefits and we wasn't requiring them to pay your guys' absorbent salaries? You talk about CEOs that are making all this money? And what do you make, Mr. O'Brien? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, I know what you make because in 2019, your salary was, um, what is this, 193000 I'm sure you got some pay raises since then. Yeah, when I was a And the average UPS driver, the feeder driver, makes... That's and what do you bring That's to the inaccurate. Table? Hold on a second. That's inaccurate. State no, facts. No, I've got it right here. State facts. That's inaccurate. The average UPS feeder driver makes, and if you don't know your facts, then maybe you should. Oh, I, I know them because I negotiate the contract. So I say, I say one thing to you. What do you bring for that salary? What do I bring? Yeah, what, do you, what, do you, what job have you committed or have you, have you uh, uh, started? What job have you created? One job other than sucking the paycheck out of some other body, somebody else that you want to say that you're trying to provide because you're forcing them to pay dues? And no, then, we don't force them. Senator, you've asked the you're question. You're out of line. Let him answer Actually, the I question. Actually, I haven't. Don't tell me I'm out of line. You are out of line. Don't tell me I'm out of line. Well, you, you, you frame, don't tell me. I'm making a statement. You frame the statement. You need to shut your mouth because you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to tell me to shut my mouth? Yes, I did. Hold it. Hold it. Tough guy. I'm not afraid of physical. Hold it. But don't sit there and tell me I'm out of line. Senator. You made a statement. You asked the question. I didn't ask the question. You did it. You did. I answered question. the question. You asked the question. About how well, it was rhetorical. Let him answer. It was, it was a rhetorical Let, Well, question. you may think it's rhetorical. It Sounded was rhetorical. to me like a question. Let him answer the question. I'm not yielding my time to him. So if you're going to let me keep my time, that's fine. You'll have your time. Let him. You ask your a question. question. He has so, a right to answer that. As far as my salary goes, my salary, if you follow me around, I walk, I actually look at this building. I bet you I work more hours than you do, twice that's, as many that's hours. That's impossible. But no, that is, that's true. Sir, you don't secondly, even know what hard work is. Secondly, if you want to follow yeah. my schedule, be Secondly, be, I'll do it in follow. a minute. Secondly, UPS feeder drivers, and you can quote uh, Carol Tomei, who quoted this, they make 93000 on the lower end. Some I of them make 150000 I said feeder drivers. Feeder drivers, tractor trailer drivers. Some of them make $150,000 per year. Some of them do. And I don't disagree with that. Most of them make over. Most four, of them after you've been there four years. Most of them make over a thousand. Okay. Uh, most of them make over a hundred thousand. So reclaiming my time, I go back to the whole fact that, sir, you haven't created a job. We haven't. You haven't been there. You haven't. Sure, we have. You haven't. Sure, we have. Tell me one job that you created. What do you, What are you talking? Be specific. You're like, an employer. You no, we're not an employer. People? 
No, but you know it's funny. So, no, we, then, we create, then, then we then create opportunity. Jobs. We create opportunity because we Sir, hold that's, that's we not, hold greedy CEOs like yourself not, accountable. You call me a greedy CEO. Oh yeah, you are. You want to attack my salary? I'll attack yours. Here, what did ahead. you make? What did you make when you owned your company? When I made my company. I kept my salary down at about uh, fifty thousand a year because I invested every penny into it. Okay, all right. You mean you hid money? No, I didn't hide. Oh, oh. hold on a second. Okay, close. He said that's out of line. You said right, I was out of line. We're even. We're, even. Made, we're not even. We're not even close to being even. You I think know. it's smart? You think you're funny? No, you're you, not. You think you're funny? No, I never said. I, did I smile? You frame. You frame your opening. Hold on, hold on. Let's. You frame your opening statement saying you're a Senator. Tough guy. Continue, this, uh, this Senator. Please this continue is your statements. But sir, this is. A, I think. I think it's great that you're doing this because Me too. this shows their behavior on how they try to come in and organize no, a shop. No, no it's and they say about intimidation, and it's not about intimidation. This, it's they show your behavior. Yep. Stay on the issue, please. The issue is if you're really for the employee. Then why are you against right to work? The guy whose name is Mark Wayne as one name. Mark Wayne? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where it's not it so it's not even that like he's just got a weird name. His name is Mark Wayne something or other and he thought he'd make himself cool by combining his first and middle names into one name. Like Prince, but shitty. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and his whole thing, he's like, what did you do? You didn't, did you, how many jobs did you create? And and, it, and then he's like, when I was in charge of my my business, I only took a salary of $50,000, never mind the fact that this guy is worth $30 million and took like $8 million <laughs> in PPP loans that he didn't pay back. And yeah, this guy is a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do love uh, when you can just uh, put all of the money, quote, in your investment that is directly tied to your name and just consider that money not earned. That's, yeah, that's I didn't an take a salary. Sleight of hand. Yeah. I didn't take a salary. I just invested it in the tons of salaries I will be collecting later. Well, and I like that just directly. He was just like, oh, so you hid money, <laughs> yeah, which, which is 100. That's like, in my opinion, like the best part of the exchange, because you can see on the look on his face that he's not like Senator Mark Wayne. <laughs> he's he also like to he gets caught there. Shit. He he's like he's like, well, I didn't. Wait, what are you trying to say, <laughs> <Yeah>. buddy? <laughs> well, that's the funny thing is like business owners don't have to be slick like a politician, yeah. like exactly as you're saying, Dan, like they are kind of just allowed to be blundering oafs who say the quiet part out loud all the time. And like you, it, it, they're not used to being in front of a camera either, because like imagine if you tried to bring a camera to their board meetings, they'd probably beat you up. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's funny because it's like he's clearly like, oh, well, you, he, he accused me of hiding money with no evidence. This is wrong. And it's like, buddy, you're worth 30 million dollars. You said you were giving yourself a salary of 50,000 dollars a year. That's admitting you hid money. So That's I don't know maths. what you're mad about. Yeah, man's not hot. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, fuck that guy. Uh, it, yeah. it was definitely very cool to see a union leader making members of Congress very mad. <laughs> yeah, I also just love uh, fucking like when when Sean O'Brien's just like, oh, big tough guy. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's like, and like, then like Mark Wayne starts getting him. 
he starts getting mad, and then O'Brien just starts laughing at him. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's what's so great about union working class politics is it, you really don't have to put on airs and pretend mm-hmm. you're anything that you're not. You, If someone is, like, being a little shit and you feel like you should take the piss out of them, just do it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, I saw a huge amount of response on Twitter after that from people who are in the Teamsters who are like, fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing. It's, it's like your constituency, you're not doing the fucking democratic campaign strategy of, well, what if I get like one hedge fund owner in Pennsylvania to support my campaign? I'll make so much money. You're like literally trying to do democracy and be like, well, I was elected by the members of my union and they can throw my ass out and there's no corporation coming to you know fund my campaign. So I actually have to listen to them. Yeah, I have to respond to the to the rank and file. And uh, instead of doing the the weird Democrat thing where you're like, come and have a beer with me at a tapas bar. That's a hundred dollars a plate. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Because <laughs> uh, because, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, union officials testifying in front of Congress. And everybody's like, oh, we got to talk about this. And I was like, eh, is it going to be interesting? And then, of course, because it's Sean O'Brien. Yes, it's very interesting. <laughs> like. Honestly, you know what? It, if if you haven't been invested in the UAW election, just think about it. What if we had two union presidents? Oh my god! Who might you know call the the <laughs> the members of Congress on their shit instead of just? I mean, I know it's not just one because we have people like you know uh, Sarah Nelson at, at the flight attendants, and there are other good union leaders. But like, I feel like O'Brien kind of stands out at least for his willingness to just drop the whole bullshit professionalism like mm-hmm. uh the, all the put exactly as you said like putting on airs and shit and just talk straight about it and it's really refreshing <laughs> he has the same kind of energy as mick lynch that way where it's yes. like he when he answers a question he answers the question right in as few words as possible sometimes yeah absolutely uh, yeah i do love really strong like bald guy like union <laughs> leaders <laughs> you have if your union leader looks like Mr. Clean, but sounds like half the people from The Departed, you're probably doing all right. You're doing a great job. Keep <laughs> at it. You're doing something right. Well, <laughs> speaking of doing something right. podcast my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we are an entirely listener supported show so if you want to help us out a little bit you can support us on patreon and in return you will get all kinds of cool bonus content in your feed i promise it's really really good stuff if you're not in the discord already hop in there it's a great place to talk to people about what you hear on the show and learn from learn and find more resources if you are a patron and don't have your stickers yet just message us on patreon and we will get them to you as soon as we can if you want to help the show a little bit more leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you think it will help yeah well and speaking of the uaw we actually have a very small update because it's more of a uh, an update of a non-update in yeah. that the election we had suspected would be counted last thursday because that was what originally was announced but it has then been postponed by one week or or maybe just like 
logisticized. That's not a word. Uh, <laughs> in a different way. But uh, yeah, so hopefully we'll actually see Sean Fain come out on top. There is still a chance that Ray Curry could come out on top, I guess. But it's still leaning towards Sean. And we're hoping that he ends up winning, creating that uh, Members United slate that is a majority on the executive board. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, still waiting very anxiously to hear the results of that, but also Mm -hmm. very uh, optimistic and excited to see how the UAW changes tack with the big upset wins, even, you know, outside of the, the position of president. But to follow up, Another real quick follow-up, although this one uh, not a great one, on the various stories we've been covering over the last few weeks about the scourge of child labor in the United States, uh, well, some of the states, governments in the U.S. have been deciding that, you know what, yeah, we do have a lot of child labor in this country, but it's not enough. We need more. (laughs) And, And so this past week... The governor of Arkansas, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who folks may remember from the Trump administration, signed a new law this week that eliminated a state provision in Arkansas that required businesses to verify the age of any children they employed under the age of 16 before hiring them. The idea being that while it is legal for kids who are like 15 years old to do certain jobs, that it's it was important, at least in, in the understanding of the prior law, to make sure that the companies made sh- verified that the kids were actually 15 so that they weren't Ill- illegally employing, you know, 12-year-olds or whatever. Uh, but that's been declared to be just an undue burden on businesses that and really hurting the economy. <laughs> Is this so, the Libertarian Presidential Convention or something <laughs> where they're like, I don't think we should sell heroin to babies. And everyone's like, boo! I mean, mean, kind of. There's a quote from uh, Rebecca Burks, who who like told a local newspaper or news website type place that said, "quote One small burden on businesses and a step in front of parents' decision making process about whether their child under 16 years of age can get a job." Oh, the laborious decision making process about whether or not my literal child should have to go to work well and this is what what she's saying here is we do intend on like having kids work jobs that they're not allowed to work Mm -hmm. this is this like straight up just saying the quiet part out loud Yeah, yeah it's time to put them in danger yeah i mean this is this goes right in line with there was a I think it was a recent episode. It might have been a news brief from Citations Needed about the history of framing issues under the guise of parents' rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, whenever you hear that, your ears should perk up. And I'm glad that they did that episode because they're right. Like, just pretty much every time that's used to push an issue in the U.S., it is pushing the issue in an extreme right-wing angle. So, for instance, you'll talk about parents' choice in where their kids go to school. And that sounds great, but what that movement is actually about is about reinstituting segregation. Yeah, and Betsy <laughs> and, DeVos from right here in West Michigan is leading the charge on that one. Yeah, and ultimately destroying the entire institution of public education so that it can be privatized and and made theocratic. Off of, yeah. Yes, and in this case, you know, you once again, we just want to give parents the right to determine if their kid is ready to to go to work, except that like. Again, as we've talked about so many times, like 95 plus 
percent of parents who send their kids who are you know 15 or 14 depending on the, the work uh, to go work are doing that because they have no other choice mm-hmm. because they are poor because this country does not pay people enough to live on and in order to pay the bills and be able to put food on the table they have to get every source of income that they can it's not because they're like this is going to be such a great growth experience for Timmy or whatever to go work at the local like fucking Burger King or Culver's or whatever. I mean, those parents do exist, especially in Wisconsin yes. and other places like that. But yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're but also I also wrong. don't think I was about to say I also don't think that those are the poor families necessarily. It's like no. the the overbearing father that says it's character building to get hurt. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You should well, be miserable, and then you'll be a lawyer. Well, I feel like it's 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 like the guy who who you know owns his own construction company and makes four hundred k a year and wants his kid to like work at his company but not really do anything so mm-hmm. that then he can inherit it later. And they're like, this is an important growth experience, which is not, again, the representative situation that you have the vast majority of kids this age working. Right. They are well, going to work because they are economically required to. So this entire framing is bullshit. It is just set up that way to manufacture consent to allow companies to use kids mm-hmm. as laborers to... to put pressure on wages to push them downward. That's the entire purpose of this argument. And when you hear stuff like parents' rights, it's like parents' rights compared to who? It's always magically in distinction to children's rights. And it's like, I don't know, man. I think maybe the framing of the argument should pose the members of a family as a team mm-hmm. and not in competition with each other for resources. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing that I actually have really appreciated that uh, uh, our friends on the death panel have talked about a lot, which is how much that this whole framing is based in the like really reactionary like way that we view kids in the U.S., that they're mm-hmm. often reduced to literal property. Yes. And, and yeah. this is all tied back into this. Because as you're kind of pointing out, at no point in here has anyone mentioned, you know, the kids' decision-making process right. on whether they want to, you know, become a worker at the age of 15. It's kind of like how when you read a lot of non-labor-oriented labor reporting, they never interview a fucking worker for the mm-hmm. entire article. Exactly. <laughs> Although I will say they did when they, they had this bill signing, there was a picture they put out with it of her like, you know, it's they do this at any like bill signing where they're like, look, we have our constituents and we got the thing. But it's like it's Sarah Huckabee Sanders making the like weirdest grimace that I've ever seen sitting next to like two kids in suits that were bought the day before who look miserable, miserable. Yeah. First day of smiling lessons. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) this is accidentally the perfect image to like frame what this bill is. I mean, even if she wasn't legislating away your rights as a literal child, I still feel like Sarah Huckabee Sanders would be one of the worst people to be around. If you're like 12 or 14, 14 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so this sucks. Uh, this is very bad. There's also similar bills going forward in places like Iowa to try and make it easier for businesses to hire kids. And this is relevant on our labor show for a whole bunch of reasons. But number one being that 
the only way we can realistically fight back against this is the way that we got child labor banned in the first place, which is a strong labor movement willing to shut down whole sectors of the economy. That's how we got child labor laws before, and that's the only way we are going to be able to enforce them now and stop this campaign of trying to roll them back. Wait, Dan, Absolutely. donating to the correct Democrats isn't going to accomplish this? <laughs> what have I, I been doing? I hate to break it to you. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to do shit. <laughs> It'll probably make the situation worse, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, speaking of strong movements that, you know, are being built currently, I mean, there's the French general strike that we had talked about previously against the Macron government's attempt to raise or, yeah, raise the retirement age. And that general strike is still ongoing and has grown to, you know, three million people. Ooh. And the estimates of the number of workers involved in the, uh, countrywide general strike a court well i mean it's it's about three million people the actual estimates from the police say that it's only 1.3 million and then the cgt which is like the general trade union the largest trade union says that it's about 3.5 million people and uh is this is like the first general strike over 24 hours called by a major trade union since 1968 that's so, so badass uh yeah pretty significant I also yeah, like, love the idea of the French police getting together to lie about the number of striking workers. He's like, <laughs> Commander, there are so many millions. What should we tell them? Tell them there is only one million, maybe one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And, and, and for perspective, because like if you know, you just want to go as percentage, like France has a population of about 65 million people. So it's about a sixth uh, or about a fifth-ish of the U.S. population. So this is basically the equivalent of between like 7 and 15 million people being on strike in the U.S. to give you like a sense of if we had the similar scale here. And and this strike has been absolutely huge. Like any of the pictures that folks have seen, especially in Paris, of course, just absolutely enormous crowds. Uh, like and, and this was cutting across all sectors. You had... Truck drivers blocking roadways and intersections in a coordinated slowdown of traffic across the country. Rail workers struck last Monday, shutting down transit for large parts of the country. The Paris Metro also shuttered. And in one that people, I think, a lot of times forget about, but can be one of the ones that where actually the impact of the strike starts to pile up real quick, the trash collectors went on strike. Oh, <laughs> always. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about piling up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and dock workers also blockaded many of the major ports, refusing to allow ships to load or unload. So, like, I mean, this is all across the logistics sector. And and then on Tuesday, the which was really the main event for the starting day for the general strike, this was uh, Tuesday, March 7th, you had, that was the day where you had, again, between 1.5 and 3.5 million people in the streets. And that included closing schools all across the country. Fuel deliveries were not provided to gas stations. Uh, like the workers at all total energy uh, gas facilities have gone on strike, which massively disrupted the energy supply in the country. Uh, there's a union rep for total workers who I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong because it's not spelled quite the same, but whose name is Marine Guillotine, <laughs> which fantastic name for a union rep. Like, I mean, talk about being born for it. Like, 
They told reporters for Al Jazeera, quote, we haven't been heard or listened to. We are using the only means we have left. It's the hard strike. We are not going to give up, end quote. Hell yeah. And so in response to the strike, of course, we see a very, very similar message to what we've heard from so many capitalist governments recently. The labor minister, Olivier Dussault, said, quote, expressing disagreement is legitimate, yet it must not lead to blocking the country, which would be dangerous to our economy, end quote. You can be mad, but don't do anything. (laughs) Right. Well, and I mean, anytime I hear either business press or some, you know, representative of of the bourgeoisie, whether they be a politician or not, they're always talking about the upcoming austerity that has to happen. Mm-hmm. It's so it's happening constantly right now. And so there this is the narrative that's going around. And like the fact that workers are saying, hey, no, we won't put up with this. And then the people in power are just like, we have to. This is neoliberalism. It's the rules. And yeah. it's not actually the rules. We can actually provide for people. <laughs> well, and also it's just so fucking annoying hearing this absolute nonsense argument from both, you know, President Biden, from Mm -hmm. the Prime Minister Sunak, from Macron here, from President Yoon in South Korea, all being like, we we agree with the workers' right to strike, but we can't disrupt the economy. And it's like, those are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't, it's and this and it and it's it's extra frustrating because it's like look I, we all know they know that it's not that they're saying this and I th- and I'm like we think that they don't understand what they're saying. The frustrating thing is watching it work on like mostly I think middle class liberals. I don't know that I've seen it work on very many working class people, but at least I have seen all sorts of people come on and like defend Biden for like, but for blocking the rail strike. Cause like, Oh, well, what if that blocked like medicine shipments? And it's like, shut up the, the, the disease of like anti solidarity that is just so rampant. Yeah. We, we support the workers right to heat up bread in the toaster, but we draw the line (laughs) at toast. (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) so i mean obviously that line of argument is not working on the french working class and protests continue the next day uh last wednesday with many shifting focus on international women's day to denounce the ways that the new rules making it so you have to work longer before retirement would place a disproportionate burden on women workers, especially the many women workers who are forced to enter the workforce at a young age. Uh, a joint statement was put out by eight French trade unions, which said, quote, twice as many women work until 67 years of age, the maximum retirement age, but they receive pensions, which are 40% lower than men. Also, 40% of French women are forced to retire early and thus only receive a partial pension, end quote. And, and so, like, again, this is... This austerity reform by by Macron is horrible for the entire French working class, but it is disproportionate on those already facing, you know, more of the burden of actually making the country run. And this all comes, unfortunately, as the French parliament appears poised to really push this through. Uh, Like, uh, just coming up before this weekend, the French Senate voted 200 to 115 in favor of the bill, despite the clear, overwhelming majority of the country that was against it. 
against raising the retirement age from 62 to 67. And protests continued pretty much all weekend prior to the deadline to finalize the legislation. So, like, the, the people have spoken. The people have made themselves extremely clear that they do not want this bill. And yet, by all accounts, all the French politicians who are in office seem poised to force it through, which, again, if you want an example on the gigantic pile of one trillion examples about how capitalist democracy is fake as shit, here you go. Here's another one. But regardless of all of that, I do think that what's important about this is like, Everybody, every time this stuff happens, everybody points out like, oh man, the French are so good at protests. They're so great at this. But it's like, it's not as if like the French are born (laughs) with a gas mask next to them or something (laughs) and like uh, instructions on how to make caltrops. Like the US working class could do this shit too, but we need organization to do it because as we've seen, the trade unions have been the backbone of the strike in France, and that's why we need to rebuild our labor movement here, because if we're going to have you know, a socialist movement that has a chance to make, give us real democracy and not this bullshit, mm-hmm. then we got to have effective protests, and to have that, we need effective trade unions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in our next story, we're going to quick hit the uh, uh, Temple University workers at Tuxa, the graduate students who have been on strike and has been have been consistently attacked by Temple University. They had reached a tentative agreement, and just as of today, they have uh, voted to ratify the tentative agreement with a count of 344 to 8, which is pretty significant, which means that they probably made some pretty big wins on this but we are really going to be following up on this a little bit more when we have the actual information because this news is just coming out basically right now as we're recording ish so uh yeah we'll, we'll make sure to follow up on this just a little bit more but we're gonna actually move to another university action that is at least pending at this moment where people at rutgers university have voted to, uh, or have at least authorized a strike with a 94% vote. Yeah, uh, for folks who, who aren't aware, if, especially if you're not you know, from the East Coast, Rutgers is, is the state university system of New Jersey. So this is a very, very big school, uh, you know, tons and tons of students. And this past week, the school's faculty voted overwhelmingly in favor of authorizing a potential strike, which would actually be the first faculty strike in the school's 257-year history. Uh, So, I mean, damn, that is a long-ass time Mm -hmm. to go without a strike. And these workers did almost go on strike a few years ago, back in 2019, but just by threatening to strike because of the fact that they clearly had a well-built organization that could follow through on that threat... Just threatening to strike with an authorization vote in 2019 forced the administration back to the negotiating table and won several of the union's key demands, allowing them to avoid a strike, which that already is just like is big points for high levels of organization because to to really back up a strike threat like that and and, and have it force the company, the well, and have it force the administration back to the table, you have to be backing that up with, with the, the ability to actually strike. And so now, you know, a few years later, when we're in the next round of contract negotiations, once again, 
there is a gap between the workers and the administration where the university has refused to agree to several key issues facing the workers. So it's possible we may see the first actual strike in Rutgers history. And just to get into what these workers are are fighting over, a big part of this, and, and this fits in with the pattern we've seen at other faculty strikes in academia, Specifically, I'm thinking of, we were talking about the new school strike earlier uh, this winter, where more and more and more universities are putting more and more burden on part-time and contingent faculty and cutting off opportunities to join the tenured track of full-time professors. And so by refusing to offer this job security in favor of higher profits, Workers at Rutgers now have faced, you know, total instability around their employment. Like one worker, Bird Jackson, who's a part-time lecturer at Rutgers Newark, told Truth Out, quote, imagine working at a university for five or 10 or 15 years or longer and having to reapply for your job every term. We can't plan our lives for any length of time, nor assure students that we will be available to mentor or assist them. And our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. God damn. I, we have been saying that since people have been coming after teachers during COVID. It, well, mm-hmm. during when COVID had just started. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely wild that people don't realize that. Right. Well, I think that this is also echoed a lot by other, teacher, other teachers as well with you know the different sorts of protest lines. I think there's even one that is on a cover of one of our episodes about you know like our our teaching conditions are their learning conditions so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and so these workers who are organized as part of uh, American Association of University Professors and American or sorry they're part of the American Association of University Professors American Federation of Teachers, which is a bit of a mouthful. And so it's the AAUP-AFT. This, of course, I think is largely because, you know, we do have a few very big education unions in the U.S., you know, the AFT and the NEA being the two big ones. So you do kind of have to differentiate between the two. But they've been organizing around this specific issue, the lack of job security for part-time lecturers and adjunct faculty for several years. And via this organizing, workers have won higher salaries, longer-term contracts, and critically, of course, a grievance procedure for non-tenure-track faculty. But now they are fighting to, to create a path to tenure for these workers, as well as specifically focusing on the conditions of, faced by part-time lecturers who are some of the worst paid and, and have the shittiest benefits of any of the workers in Rutgers' system. And specifically what they're fighting for for these part-time lecturers is to be paid the same per credit rate as non-tenure track faculty to ensure equal pay for equal work. Because right now, these part-time lecturers may be doing the same work as anybody who's considered, you know, full-time non-tenure track, but they're paid a lower rate per credit hour, which makes no sense because they're doing the same job. Yeah, well, and I'm, I imagine that this is also a really great way to discipline labor that they don't necessarily, you know, want to either get full time or get near tenure track because it's already like pretty common that, you know, teachers that don't toe the university line just don't make tenure. They just will not ever make tenure. And so, yeah. 
I mean, that yeah. that also, I, th- I feel like it could very easily lead to systemic discrimination. Right. And that, of course, you know, we see a bit of over-determination when we look at uh, policies attacking tenure. Like, I'm specifically thinking about Florida. Like, Florida mm-hmm. Florida is, of course, a test case now for basically every new tactic that U.S. fascism uses. And, like, one of them has been, even before this year, like, a really strong attack on tenure by the Florida government. Now, of course, the the reason that most people have seen for them doing that is to, you know, make the education more right-wing, more theocratic. But also, like, that's sort of the bonus for them. Their goal Mm -hmm. really is to eliminate tenure entirely. Because the idea that there can be a worker with job protection (laughs) who can say things and disagree with the boss and not be fired is anathema to capitalists. And so the entire concept of tenure is something they don't want. So there, and of course, tenure also protects workers and gives them better, you know, salaries and and working conditions, which they also don't want. They only want to apply those to admin positions that they can give to people who are already in the ruling class. Mm -hmm. So, and specifically one of the issues that has faced the, the part-time lectures is that they're part of a separate unit, the adjunct faculty union, which in 2019 workers were not happy with the way that that separate unit faced up to contract negotiations. And so they voted in a new more militant leadership after they didn't feel that they got enough gains from the last contract negotiations. And so now uh, one of the members of the adjunct faculty union, one of the vice president, actually Brian Sachs said, quote, In our view, the reason for these failures was that leadership did not practice true democratic unionism, and thus it failed to build the requisite strength for achieving transformational change through the mass organizing of rank-and-file PTLs behind these demands, end quote. Wow, I like this person. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I'm like, damn, that sounds like stuff we say on the show all the time. And I don't mean to be like, damn, we're right. And somebody's agreeing with us, but it's like, you don't, I feel like this is usually, cause we hear unionists say essentially this mm-hmm. all the time, but it's, it's really interesting to see it in, in very direct language. And I really appreciate that. I mean, 100%. And so like in the, unlike in the past where the main faculty union and the adjunct union had kind of been bargaining on their own This contract negotiations, they are now bargaining in a united front and building relationships and solidarity with the grad student workers and the blue collar unions on campus as well, trying to build that true wall to wall united labor front on the Rutgers network, which is great. That's fantastic. That's like every every, you know, college union should be trying to do this because it's the same thing that we've talked about at like hospitals where, you know, a lot of times you'll have the nurses in one union and you'll have maybe the maintenance staff and everybody else in another union. And sometimes that makes sense, but you always want those unions, if they have to be separate, working together at all times, because otherwise you're just kind of undermining each other. And so seeing this sort of a united front tactic is fantastic. Like this is really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, clearly this person has, you know, read their history on what works and what doesn't. I mean, there's a reason that we would advocate for this sort of thing, and we're really glad that they're actually putting uh, this sort of effort together. But uh, so now, I mean, nine months after the contract has expired, the facility at Rutgers and uh, are the, the faculty at Rugger, Ru- Ruggers, I keep saying, I just keep saying Ruggers, uh, <laughs> the, the faculty at Rutgers are united and ready to strike. 
With the intensive organizing initiated by the workers since the last contract already paying dividends, these workers are strongly positioned to win one of the best academic contract in years, which is exactly what you would expect from a united front. Yeah. And so, you know, we're still waiting to see because the strike's been authorized. But of course, you know, there's already the precedent of the last time that they had contract negotiations, a strike authorization alone was able to force the university back to the table. So we're still not sure if there will be a strike, but everything that we've seen about the tactics, the planning, the strategizing that these workers have been doing, like this is, I'm reading about this story to put the notes together. I was always just like, well, now I just want to point people to Rutgers (laughs) as an Mm -hmm. example and just be like, these folks know what they're doing. And that's true of a lot of other places. Like, you know, like the, the grad student workers at Columbia, now the workers at Temple, but like, this all-encompassing United Strike like strike movement, I think, is 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 really an example that we can learn from. And so, there was the author of the of this piece in Truth Out about this organizing effort that was like the source of a lot of the notes, whose former AAUPAFT president Deepa Kumar said, "Quote: One of the lessons from the almost strike in 2019 was that we have power when we come together. We had overwhelming student support because our students saw that our working conditions were their learning conditions. We also had public support. Struggle is contagious, and our past victories, as well as those of our colleagues at other universities, have only raised our expectations. Yeah, and you know, I'm maybe I'm just uh, I'm only surprised because I am less you know familiar with college level struggles, but you know, having known a couple people who have been in uh, unions in universities from the past there were a lot of complaints about you know business unionist style tactics which made me think that oh maybe that's very common but uh what we've seen over the past year with university unions is an absolute like 180 almost from what has been happening in the past with this huge shift in just like rank and file movements democratic unions and really just victories that have come out of that sort of organizing them teaching each other these tactics and just moving forward together as this united front it's really really impressive but this doesn't come without major attacks from the you know the right wing and even just like the administration of these universities themselves because at duke university they have responded to the union drive there by literally suing the grad workers to try to make unions as to make it so that graduate students cannot form unions to roll back the the rules and and I guess it is a rule. It's not a law necessarily. I can't remember. Um, What's well, a ruling by the NLRB? Yeah, it's it's a ruling, but uh, just to to roll back, you know, to when it was literally illegal for grad students to organize. Yeah. So back in 2016, the NLRB ruled relating to the drive by workers at Columbia University that grad student workers are, in fact, as we all knew, employees and are entitled to the right to unionize. But Duke is here asserting essentially the same doctrine of judicial oversight that we see used by reactionary Republicans to dismantle regulatory arms of the liberal state. And they are arguing that the board exceeded its authority by making a ruling and that only Congress or at least a judge can issue such such a ruling. I like to call this the you're not my dad defense. <laughs> and I do not think it will work for Duke University. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping not. It is a really common tactic right now with whether it be like 
the EPA has had this ruled against them where it's like they're ex- overextending their rule or their ability to do the ruling. L- the NLRB and other cases have had this sort of uh, contention. Honestly, it doesn't really work very often, but sometimes it does. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the thing with this is with the US is, is that like our whole judicial system is made up of these like vat grown heritage foundation freaks that it's it's like this big roulette wheel where it's just like yeah clearly there's already precedence that says yes grad student workers are workers mm-hmm. and should be allowed to unionize but hey if you get you spin the wheel and you get i don't know some district in texas and you've got some guy who thinks that you know i don't know workers shouldn't be able to drive cars or something Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i don't know some some new form of reactionary nonsense that like we can't even conceive of if if that guy gets the 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 case then who knows yeah well i mean uh we heard from duke university interim vp of public affairs chris simmons who could not even come up with a convincing line of bullshit he literally says our relationship with PhD students is centered on education, training, and mentorship, which is fundamentally different from that of employer to employee. Our PhD students are not admitted to do a job. They are selected because of their potential to be excellent scholars. And there's so much wrong with that. <laughs> but let's just start with, first off, education, training, and mentorship are part of the employer employee relationship mm-hmm. what are you smoking <laughs> well i mean like this is, also, it would be a pretty pretty uh awesome damnation of of general labor conditions <laughs> if it's yeah. like jobs don't teach you anything you don't work for them you don't learn anything they don't make you do anything you know like <laughs> well and the whole conception is just like Oh, they're not employees, and we're just like, well, do they do they do a job? Yeah, do they and teach classes? <laughs> do do you give them money in exchange for goods or services? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like yes. I, it's, it's like I buy something over the counter at a store, and I exchange money for the item, and then I look at it and I go, "This one is not a product." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what this are you is talking about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, n'est pas un travailleur. Uh, but but like, yeah, I mean, this whole thing is just complete nonsense. Like, it, PhD students have to work to get paid their stipend. That means they are exchanging their labor in order to get money, which makes them an employee. <laughs> like it's is like that's they are employed by the school. Like it, it, it's like this is just definitional. <laughs> like you don't even have to make a complex legal argument. <laughs> I wish you all could see how frustrated Dan is looking as he's yeah. being like, and he puts his hands out, and this is—it's literally this. <laughs> <laughs> It—it's just fr- because it's like it. I get very frustrated when people know that they are bullshitting you, and you know they know that, mm-hmm. but they keep it up anyways, and it's just like. Man, fuck you. Just say you don't want to pay them. Just say that. Because we know that's all what this is. <laughs> like, Yeah, absolutely. It's so frustrating. <laughs> but and the other thing, though, that I want to tie that into is because the other thing that this argument is based on, in addition to the attempt to dismantle the regulatory state, uh, which has been largely founded on this idea of, like, if it doesn't say in the Constitution 
like that you can do X, Y, or Z, then it's not legal, <laughs> which is just the most nonsensical legal you know doctrine to have unless you're a capitalist. But mm-hmm. the other part of this specific to schools that this ties into is the longstanding lie that student athletes at major universities, especially in the lucrative sports of football and basketball, are not employees of the school that they play for, which is, of course, nonsense. It's a lie, and it's a lie used to prop up a system essentially of slavery. And this is not, you know, quite the same because in in the student-athlete's case, it's specifically like, no, we're not going to pay them at all. Here, they're like, oh, we give them a stipend, but that's not a wage, and so we can't let them unionize, which is bullshit, but functionally, it's going to that same argument of like, oh, no, you don't have a job at a university. You live in this snow globe bubble, and everybody, it's like you're hanging out on the quad and throwing a Frisbee, and <laughs> and everything is free or something. I, like, I don't know, like, the the, the portrait that, they, that these university administrators create about the world on university campuses is, like the most ridiculous fantasy that it's like every it's like the opening to Bioshock infinite. It's like, it's just completely ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're talking like they're trying to convince someone in middle school that they're going to end up going to college one day. Yeah, yeah, actually, (laughs) I think that's a pretty good analogy. But so in response to this frivolous, ridiculous argument by Duke, Uh, On Twitter, the Duke grad union said, quote, we will win recognition in the end, but this transparent delay tactic is keeping us from the fair contract we deserve. Adequate child care, international student protections, and COLA cannot wait. We call on Duke to live up to their DEI commitments and listen to their workers, end quote. Hell yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's shocking how much these universities are really willing to just try and treat their employees like they're not, not just not employees, but like not people with like mm-hmm. responsibilities and children and rent to pay. Yeah, that the children one is always that's the one that we've been trying to hammer home so often lately, mm-hmm. because even when the universities don't just straight up dehumanize these people. They also will just be like, well, you're just an individual and you should only be able to make enough to buy the uh, 30 packs of ramen for a 31 day month, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so so absolutely ridiculous. And I, I don't really have a lot of confidence that it's going to go through, which is a, a good thing. But you never know, because as Dan likes to say, the law is fake. It's extremely um, fake. But speaking of... The law being fake, we can kind of talk about the Democrats and how they have, you know, in doing something kind of good, have also, in the same breath, attacked the workers the exact same time that they have attempted to help in some ways. So, in 2012, in Michigan, right to work was passed in this state. And, you know, this is the if you don't know what right to work is, it's a legislation that requires by law unions to represent workers regardless of paying dues. And it's really an attempt to drain funds from unions so that there is less that unions can do and just basically systemically Mm -hmm. underfunding the unions. And then uh, along with that. We can go even further back in history when in 1947, the Hutchinson Act uh, banned teachers, municipal workers, and cops from striking, 
Which, yeah, I don't care if cops can't strike. They shouldn't even be allowed to have unions. But that's not the point. The, the point is, is the mut- the teachers here. Um, what, the, what's up? Well, the cops thing is funny because it's like, look, of course cops, like, shouldn't exist. But, like, also, and, and they're not workers, so their unions are fake. But I, this is one of those things because I feel like the first instinct is like, oh, I'm fine with cops being banned from striking because fuck cops. Very understandable viewpoint. However... <laughs> Isn't it better for everyone when the cops are on strike because they're not out in the streets like killing That's people? That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I remember so. there was, like, the blue flu incidents that's happened a couple of times in New York where some some the legislature oh, yeah. does something and then crime where there's goes mild down. criticism. Yeah, and they, they <laughs> stop showing up. They're like, oh, well, you see, you don't like us so much? Well, lol. We'll see what happens when we don't do our jobs and then you come crawling back. And then crime went down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... So, so people might have heard that right to work was on the legislate, like was in a bill, or at least the re- the repeal of right to work was in a bill in Michigan. But uh, why is it that I'm bringing up the right to strike? Well, because originally when this bill was passed by the House of Representatives in Michigan, it actually included uh, giving teachers back their right to strike. But once it made it to the Senate, Right before the Senate voted to pass it, they stripped that part of the language out of the bill, making it so that the teachers, so that teachers in Michigan still don't have the right to strike. Boo! And then you know it 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 passed, and then the governor signed it. Uh, and so you think, oh gosh, this Republican Senate, right? Well, no, actually, the Democrats uh, control a majority in both the House and Senate in Michigan. And so they actually just willingly attacked teachers here. They they just straight up did it because they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it. Look, look I, I don't want us to sound like overly negative, like the the only ever critical Marxist. Because like, look, it is good that Michigan repealed right to work. Mm-hmm. That's genuinely a good thing that will help workers across the state. But the fact that they like had the opportunity to, in the same moment give a big boost to teachers who even in the most fucking cynical triangulating Democrat brain, you might think, you know, most of the teachers vote for the Democrats. But again, mm-hmm. because of the, the incredibly cynical calculation of, well, yeah, they do. But if we fuck them over, what are they going to do? Vote for Republicans? The, the ones that are trying to privatize public education? No, they have to vote for us. So we don't have to give them anything. And it's just like, it's so gross and fucked up because it's like, and I don't look, I'm not going to throw all the heat on Michigan here, Massachusetts, supposedly progressive state. How many times have we talked about the fact that not only are teacher strikes illegal there, but they actually use the law banning those strikes immediately. Like it's not just one of those old, like, cause again, this is a 1947 law. I have no idea if this law is actually still used mm-hmm. actively in Michigan, whereas it definitely is in Massachusetts, but it, still it is. Yeah, the, I mean, the idea that it should be illegal for this group of workers to strike is, again, it's it's anti-democratic, it's anti-worker, it's horrible. And, and the fact that they couldn't be bothered in the midst of doing something genuinely good, like repealing right to work, to just give teachers the right to strike is – it's – it's just it's classic democrat move. Well, and while looking through the the news on this topic, I saw some different news programs one which was doing interviews with parents 
And I can only guess what question they actually asked these people, but it, it must have been something simple as, should teachers be able to walk out of the class and not teach children? Like, it must have been that because the, it, the responses from, uh, from some of these parents are like, well, no, kids should be in school. And I'm just like, you're, you're clearly not framing this in any sort of, like, generous way or even even in a realistic way and you're just doing lip service to these conservatives who are in power passing this legislation against teachers they're literally like trying to find the the parents that they can get to say no i don't think teachers should have rights yeah i mean it's like when you see those polls where it's just like what do americans think of welfare and it's just like 70 percent disapproval and it's like what do americans think of cash assistance to the poor 70 percent approval <laughs> exactly again like the capitalist pr people know what they're doing and 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 the media is part of that pr machine uh whether people want to accept that or not uh and and there's a reason you see so much overlap between like marketing people and the people in charge of newspapers. Yeah. Uh, because they're just marketing fake capitalist democracy to people. Well, um, speaking of trying to convince people of things, what about these job listings that are trying to convince workers that they're actually managers mm -hmm. and that they actually have big, important jobs? So we saw a new report in the New York Times that was digging into the growth of companies that were classifying as many workers as possible as managers. And uh, not because they have actual management responsibilities or you know any kind of chance to move up the corporate ladder, but just as a means of stealing their wages. Uh, and we talked about this on the show a few different times, mostly just offhand that like a lot of jobs will just salary you, call you a manager even when you're not, and then work you 60 hours a week. So you end up making less than minimum wage, despite the fact that you theoretically make pretty good money. So between 2010, this comes from the report, and 2019, the number of workers considered quote unquote managers increased by more than 25%. And from 2010 to 2018, workers who made just over $35,000 were five times as likely to be classified as managers as workers making just under 35k <clears throat> dollar general i believe is one of the yeah. biggest offenders of that yeah and just to explain to people why that $35,000 number is important that's the cutoff point in the overtime law where if you make over $35,000 $35,500 a year and you're classed as a manager they can salary you and you are exempt from overtime mm -hmm. which that is a really low Salary to be exempt from overtime. That is $17.75 an hour. Yeah, yeah it's so weird is... because I feel like the exemption from overtime was originally like the CEOs don't need overtime. They're right. just sitting in their office drinking whiskey. And now it's like <laughs> the workers don't need overtime. They're technically managers and they can do eight mm -hmm. more hours. No problem. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think while we're still going over some of the statistics, one of the things that was really striking to me was that at the beginning of the pandemic, when the workforce shrank by millions of workers, the number of workers like classed as managers stayed completely still, mm -hmm. which means that yeah. these businesses were overworking these people who were considered managers because they could. They, they mm -hmm. can just... You know, they're salaried. So, uh, yeah, we had to get rid of three workers. So you're going to be doing 80-hour weeks now. Uh, sure, we'll give you, uh, what is it, like a, a $500 bonus and uh, mm -hmm. no raise. Yeah. And 
it's really, it's become even easier for companies to get away with doing stuff like this with the rise of things like mandatory arbitration clauses in contracts. Because, you know, in the past, there have been examples of this misclassification where there have actually been workers who have been able to recoup some of these stolen wages. It's very rare and it's not an effective means of controlling this problem. But there have been a few cases where there are workers who have actually sued uh, their employers, oftentimes like a franchise owner for one of these big companies like Panera or Dollar General or one of these other places, where they've sued them and saying like, look, you can't pay us $35,000 and then have us work 80 hours a week mm-hmm. and not pay any overtime. It's just ridiculous. And there have been a few victories there. But you can't do that. You can't sue your employer if you have a mandatory arbitration clause. So that is essentially, like you have this one-two legal punch that gives the workers nowhere to go mm-hmm. like to to try and actually address what is just obviously wage theft. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that another thing that makes it really obvious that these are, you know, not actually managerial jobs is cuz sometimes the workers that end up in these positions are things like relationship managers or personal bankers at at like financial institutions who are basically just people who do work like they do paperwork they they talk to customers and they're classed as managers because they quote manage accounts mm-hmm. yeah like th- that's a position that would previously have been labeled like clerk yeah and, and now they're like no it's a relationship manager yeah <laughs> or, it, or it would be like a personal banking officer or something somebody yeah. who's like actually in the corporate structure but now instead it's like actually we have this little entrepreneur who sits at the front desk it's like right. what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> right well and it's not even just like you know because i mean maybe banking isn't quite as like uh the example that that people are looking to in this kind of thing but also it applies to people who work at like panera and dunkin donuts mm-hmm. who are considered Mm-hmm. assistant managers who just do the tasks of regular people and have to maybe count a till or something like that. Yeah. A lot of assistant yeah. managers don't like, they don't have hiring and firing power. They don't have, they don't assign salaries. Really. They're there to count tills and tell people when they get their 10 minute breaks. Right. It, well, that, that's one of those things. The, the supervisor, I feel like that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg here. Like the, the big place they started was, turning supervisors into assistant managers where there's literally no difference whatsoever in their job. But by doing that, they're able to use this exemption and again, work people 50, 60, 70, and literally 80 hours a week, especially in the case of dollar general dollar stores are a blight on this country. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just not pay them for all of those hours. I think the example that you you had in, in here, Lena, like that was probably one of the most egregious, was having somebody be labeled the food cart manager. Like, oh yeah, that person is a worker. They are not a manager. Like come yeah, on, or, or lead reservationist. That's the person yeah. who sits there and like you know seats people at restaurants or something. That's a hostess yeah. or a host. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. There's already names for all this stuff. They think that if they change the (laughs) names, they change the thing itself. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, And, and this is like, this is a big problem. Like for the report that the New York times cites from the national Bureau of economic research, this has a really big impact. They estimate that this misclassification costs workers $4 billion a year in wages, averaging out to about $3,000 
per misclassified employee. Although, of course, it's an average. You probably have like a lot of workers who maybe they lose a few hundred dollars, but then you have those dollar general assistant managers who are having like tens of thousands of dollars in wages stolen from them every year. Yeah, I had a friend who worked uh, as one of those, and uh, it was a fucking nightmare. I do Mm -hmm. remember, I think I might have even told this story on the show before, but one of the things that she liked to do was set the lights to half brightness and lock one of the front doors about an hour or two before the shift ended so that she could like count the till, mostly because she was working alone or only working with one other person. But uh, I, I just remember being like, wait, so you just basically close early? And she's like... Yeah, the cameras don't work. They're like, <laughs> yeah, what are they hell do? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just be on the lookout if you or somebody you know gets offered a position that's labeled a manager but doesn't seem to quite come with the salary you'd expect. Be on the lookout for them trying to steal your wages and making you work absolutely ridiculous hours. Right, mm-hmm. and I mean, one last detail about this. We kind of refer or like reference that they end up working a lot more hours, but it's also not just the number of hours that they're scheduled to work, but the number of hours that they're expected to cover because these are the mm-hmm. people who can very easily be reprimanded or fired if they don't just straight up cover every single person who gets sick. Like, yeah, that is that they are there to like be the the person who covers for sick time for zero extra dollars yeah yeah it's terrible but speaking of terrible but then not terrible (laughs) oh is this a paper joke (laughs) no (laughs) it wasn't but that would be a decent pun i suppose (laughs) so we've got a a story that starts out kind of shitty but ends up pretty good so we've uh Definitely an industry we have not covered on the show before. We've got a new union that was just formed by workers at the company TCG Player, as in tradable, or what is it? Trading Uh, card game. Trading card game, that's it. Uh, I don't know why I thought it was something else. But yeah, so TCG Player, which is a a subsidiary of eBay. It's basically a marketplace for selling and I think trading, Um, like playing cards and games like, you know, like Magic, and any of the Pokemon cards, any of the million different collectible card games that exist. Yu-Gi-Oh, um, Card Fight, Vanguard, mm-hmm. you know, all, all, the, all the ones, you know. Yeah, uh, Monster Rancher trading card game, uh, uh, Elden Ring trading card game. <laughs> Does Digimon still exist? Is that a thing? Oh, yeah, Digimon <laughs> definitely still exists. Nice. Well, so a TCG Player is this marketplace for, you know, buying, selling, trading cards for all these various games. And that's a pretty lucrative business, and that's why they were purchased by eBay. And so these workers then, though, realize it's like, you know, we're working a hell of a lot of hours, and we don't really have any protection. So they launched an organizing drive to unionize with the CWA and become the first union inside, even if they're just a subsidiary, of the, you know, internet giant that is eBay. And they had previously tried to organize a couple of years ago with the SEIU in 2020, but they were met with intense union busting from uh, nemesis of the show, Littler Mendelssohn, and uh, they ended up pulling their union election petition before actually having the vote. Yeah, so along with that union busting, I also think that at the time they weren't 
owned by eBay, so there might have been a little bit of a we're a family kind of bullshit going mm. on that convinced them that, you know, or at least a couple enough of the workers to not be pro-union that they did have to pull their election. But uh, that was probably very easily disillusioned when you work for one of the largest internet resellers besides Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in their efforts to unionize here, they faced a pretty, you know, stiff challenge from eBay as far as union busting. They had they filed multiple ULPs against the company for interfering with, restraining, and coercing employees engaged in protected and concerted union activity, aka union busting. Uh, and I believe now I don't have notes on this because I this is one of those things I feel like I saw on Twitter. So I apologize that this is not a well researched comment. But I feel like when I was like originally heard about this drive, I saw that they had like circulated like I don't know if it was memos or emails to workers at TCG Player being like, if somebody's like pressuring you to join the union, you can call the police. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I think I think they, that is right. I think they were told to call the cops on their fellow workers if they were like talking to them about the union. If Danny DeVito, dressed as the Penguin from the seminal movie <laughs> Batman, jumps out the bushes and asks you to sign a card, you're legally entitled to call the piggies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, like that's one of those tactics that I like that in, sort of intimidation tactic that I really am curious if that's ever been effective. <laughs> because I feel like every time we hear about the, you should call the cops on your fellow workers, I feel like almost, I think the only time that might've been effective was the Geico workers because of the fact that they had to go to their coworkers' houses because they all worked like remote. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like one of the only times I've ever heard that been effective. I feel like every other time the it's completely backfired and people have been like, well, I wasn't sure about the union, but why would I call the cops on the people I work? It's also so funny because it's like, I understand that like you think that there's, that you can tell me there's something illegal happening here but the at the end of the day you're telling me to call the cops on jeff from the front desk <laughs> yeah. and mary from the back office who are both very nice people i'm not gonna do it like <laughs> yeah. i also like this this is maybe their attempt to avoid the charge of surveillance which they also did uh yeah. because <laughs> Because, you know, if they're just calling the cops, they're not being like, hey, you should come to us if someone is right. uh, talking to you about the union because that would be very blatantly illegal. And so they're mm -hmm. like, oh, we're not allowed to tell you you can do that. So just go to the other union busters, the police. Yeah. <laughs> they, they sat around in an office and they're like, it's not illegal to call the cops. <laughs> we can have yeah. them do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But thankfully... All of that bullshit didn't work, once again. So uh, just at the end of this past week, with a vote count of 136 to 87, so uh, large in favor of the union, but not a, not a total landslide, these workers voted in favor of unionizing with the CWA and are now officially the first union inside of you know the country's largest online uh, auction house, eBay, which is really cool. Yeah. And so... We have a quote here from Paul Neri, who is a worker at TCG Player, who said, quote, I joined the union effort at TCG Player because I wanted to raise up the voices of my peers and correct the existing imbalance of power. This has been the hardest thing I've ever fought for. But knowing that my colleagues came out in droves to stand together against efforts to silence our voice and erase our collective power made the fight worth it. 
With our new union, we will be a united force for the betterment of our workplace and so many others, end quote. Hell and yeah. also, I just want to say, Paul, you should do PR for unions because you're very good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, that's exactly what they're doing here. Yeah. You know, being the, the spokesperson for their, for their union, in a sense. <laughs> yeah. So congratulations to these workers. This kicks ass. Uh, and and this is I think this is really cool because this is an area that I what I didn't even consider the idea of like eBay employees unionizing. I think part of it is because I'm like eBay that's just an, a big algorithm, mm-hmm. which is stupid because that's not how websites work. They all require people. But I feel like eBay does a really good job of making you think it's like oh no no this is all automated. <laughs> well, eBay was like the original. <laughs> online marketplace so i feel like they still want to seem like the seamless easy to use you know kind of interface which is interesting um but yeah of course it it takes you know a huge number of people to keep a company like that going and all the subsidiaries i was shocked to learn they own tcg player i didn't know that mm. till we started yeah. doing the notes for this Right. Well, and with their union victory of 136 to 87, they are now going to be moving to bargaining for a contract and, you know, fighting for better conditions and other sorts of things that you get with the union. Uh, The sort of thing that shouldn't be taken away by, Mm -hmm. let's say, you know, people who are running the union itself, which you might be able to tell that I am segueing into the next story, (laughs) uh, where we have a story out of New York City where the United Federation of Teachers and AFSCME have voted to basically gut retirement health care, the retirement health care plan, because they are being required to fill the city's budget hole. So this, hold on, let me just start by saying <laughs> this, this story sucks <laughs> so for so many reasons. It just sucks it's for bad. so many reasons. Uh, as you know, people know if you got a good union job, there probably is a decent retirement plan in there with a pension, health care for after you're done. Uh, and so a lot of these retirees who were mostly public employees and teachers had pretty good health care. They actually were, they had Medicare and the uh, extra costs were then covered, but it was also, you know, in, uh, in negotiation with the city council or, or I guess the city government, well, because of wage raises and, and other sorts of things, there has been this big gap in the actual budget of the city. And apparently that's the union's problem, which th- that part yeah. I don't understand. But we're, apparently historically the unions have made cuts to like uh, some workers' raises to make sure that the retirees could still keep their health care. But even after years and years of austerity, somehow the austerity just doesn't stop. I don't. I <laughs> where do we see this, folks? It's it's wild. Uh, no, but uh, again, the union is being expected to fill this hole in the uh, the city budget, and that the city will not. Uh, agree to the a, a new contract until they do, which to me sounds like bargaining in bad faith. Like if you don't have enough money, I don't know, tra- tax some rich person. 
Like it's it's not our fault that you haven't coordinated your budget well. You can't just not take care of the people that you promised to take care of because you are bad at doing politics. Like that's just <laughs> not that's not how that works. Yeah, th- this story is. So obviously this is specifically about New York City, but like this is a problem that has happened in a lot of of cities where not necessarily this specific instance where the the unions themselves are basically being forced at gunpoint by the city to bargain away their retirees' health care, but specifically attacks on municipal workers' pension plans. Because again, for, for people who may not really know that much about these because pensions are now extremely rare... Like the whole idea of a pension is you work at somewhere for a long period of time, usually a minimum of 10 years, but 15 or 20 sometimes, depending on where it is. And then they agree that they will pay you a certain amount of money for your retirement. That's the whole bargain. They, you give them literally decades of your life and they pay you a wage, of course, too. But like in exchange, they make sure that you will not, you know, be poor or just completely out, you won't be bankrupt because you retire. But state after state and city after city has like tried to find ways to weasel out of that because they're like, oh, well, look how expensive the pension obligations are. Too fucking bad. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You already made the agreement. You don't get to back out of the agreement because it's too expensive. You control the taxes. (laughs) Like you, that's the other thing. They act like, oh, well, we just don't have enough money. You can just make people pay you. You are the state. You have that power. You can just say, okay, we made this agreement to pay these people's retirement, and it has become more expensive. I guess we're going to have to raise taxes some way or the other or some other revenue-gaining thing. That's supposed to be the response to an expensive pension plan. But there are so many American cities where there's like, well, but what if instead, what if we just uh, went back on our agreement and screwed over all these old people who gave us decades of their lives? Right. Well, and then the specific way that they're trying to implement this is especially egregious because it's not that, it's not even that they're just like, all right, we're going to get rid of all the health care, blah, blah. They're going to force the unions to accept a Medicare Advantage plan which mm-hmm. still takes all of the subsidies from the government and pay and gives people worse plans that cover le- that generally cover less which at the very least it makes it so they can't go to certain doctors they lower the amount of eligible you know places that people can go to get health care makes people more likely to end up getting randomly charged if they end up in an emergency room or something like that uh just absolutely egregious plans that should be illegal and also are these medicare advantage plans are privatized health care plans of mm-hmm. public infrastructure this is the public private partnership of health care and so just absolutely awful but when they did the math it doesn't actually save any money, so it seems more like a plan just to funnel more members into these private health care plans. And once that actually happens and they've cut the actual health benefits of these retirees, there will still be this giant budget hole where they can then just force the union to try to cut elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And somehow these the, these, the uh, New York City Municipal Labor Committee, who actually agreed to this— they're not seeing through it. I, I, what, I just, it, it's beyond me. 
Yeah, that's one of the most frustrating parts of the story. Because, like, look, the bad guy ultimately in this story is the leadership of the New York City government. Like, it's Mayor Eric Adams and the people in charge forcing this deal on them. But that doesn't absolve the leadership of these two unions of the for not fighting it harder. And I know again, it's always easy to be to for us to be like, "Hey, you should strike." And cuz striking is extremely difficult, is extremely expensive, and it can be extremely costly. But like what again, what is the point of having organizations like unions if you're not going to fight for the things you formed that organization for in the first place? Or worse yet, like, hand down edicts that come from the very people you're supposed to be fighting as if mm -hmm. it's something that belonging to that organization means you're bound to support. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And th they could easily, cause there are people protesting this. There are people who are actually mm -hmm. doing picketing around this, this issue because there are, it's going to be a quarter million people who are going to be without decent health care. They are mobilizing, and instead of mobilizing for something like single-payer health care, which would very much so solve a lot of these issues, they are being forced into fighting for their basic plan, and the, and the unions are not actually directing the power of the working class here in a, any sort of productive method that would actually provide more benefits to not only these retirees, but the entire working class. Mm -hmm. It's just nonsensical to me. Yeah, and, it, and it's like, look, I again, I want to emphasize that, like, yes, I get that it is a very, like, difficult prospect to strike. And in New York City, like, you know, I know there have been public union officials who have literally gone to prison in the past for striking when it was illegal. And you know what? We remember those people fondly because they mm -hmm. actually fucking stood up for something. They don't look back on the person who was like, well, yeah, I know I accepted this position in charge of the union so that I'd actually, you know, be in charge of the union. But like, I don't, I don't want to go to jail. Well, it's, it's like, like, okay, yeah, I don't either. But guess what? Again, why should anyone believe in your organization if you're just going to do this shit? If you're just going to turn your back mm -hmm. on the folks who have, like, you know, they, they, again, they gave up decades of their lives to earn this retirement. This is not just some nice benefit that the, the very nice, like, government of New York City deigned to give these workers. They earned that shit, and that was the whole reason they had the union in the first place. So it's like, yeah, like... It is a self-sabotaging move in addition to being morally wrong. Like, because if I have to go, you know, if I have to go tell people that like, this is why you pay your, like, why they should pay their union dues, now what am I supposed to tell them if I'm in New York? You should pay your union dues because the union will fight for your retirement. Well, I mean, they won't, but it would be cool if they did. Yeah, yeah like exactly. This is this is directly just feeding into right wing propaganda about unions. And th even then, on top of all of this egregious bullshit, the contract that the workers are going to be voting on, which they can reject, but they are not allowed to take this part out of the uh, out of the T.A. or whatever it is. Um, they are actually also going to be taking a wage cut on top of that. So the entire contract is bullshit, and even, like, if they don't accept it, they're, they don't actually necessarily have the ability to stop this massive cut to the retiree program. I, yeah, so this whole, this, whole, this whole situation is completely fucked. Uh, fuck Eric Adams and the leadership of New York City for 
starting this whole thing and putting the unions in this horrific position and blackmailing them into betraying their workers, but also leadership of these local unions. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Get it together. Yeah. Well, I know we, 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 we kind of format like we don't usually end on, on a note like that, but, uh, unfortunately that's the way that the, uh, that it has come down in this particular episode. So I guess maybe apologies, but we're going to move to the meme review now and hopefully get a little bit more lighthearted as we end the episode. Yeah, normally I put a happier story at the end, and I forgot to do that this week. <laughs> Oops. But, but in happier news, we have memes. That's right. That's right. So our first one this week, very simple one from uh, Nick on Twitter, at Nuts and Bolts 1937, who is a UAW member, who is actually a very good follow, um, who just tweeted this picture. And it is a picture, and it's captioned, when your manager says, don't worry, we're all in the same boat. And then the picture is literally the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. One thing I thought that was funny about this is uh, because this is just in a Word document, we, we have this all in our notes, uh, it was big enough that I only saw the picture of the Titanic and then it said, win your manager. And that was like the <laughs> whole meme. <laughs> you could crop it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And then you just gotta you just gotta like deep fry that shit, and then it's like here's the the zillennial version of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our next uh, our next meme is a real text heavy one. It it's kind of format. Is this a modern meme formatted to look like this, or is this a scan of an old printed thing? I feel like this is actually pulled from this is this is a retro meme. It really feels like a, a blast from the past. Well, it has a it has a worker collapsed over a desk in exhaustion. And at the top, it says no, no loyalty to the bosses. And then under it, uh, here comes the paragraph. It says work takes more out of you than you can take out of it. You can purchase numerous commodities, but you can't ever buy back the hours of your life sold to capital. Whether you get paid in grades for your academic piecework or wages for facilitating commodity consumption, work is everywhere an alienation of your capacity to determine your own life. And then in great big fuck off all caps, it says no loyalty to the institution. Which yeah. I love. You know, there's nothing I hate more than being in an institution and meeting somebody with loyalty to it. Oh, gross. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I really, I also, this one feels almost just like an adjective, but also I, the thing that makes me think that it is like copied out of something is that it's just slightly angled. You notice that it's like, yeah. it's like four degrees to the top, right? It's got some jank my, to it. My, my one quibble with this is I think it's actually like, this is more of like a leaflet mm-hmm. than it is like a meme. <laughs> it's a memelet. Uh, like when, like yeah. when Jimmy yeah, Jr. from of. Bob's Burgers had the idea to mix music and poetry, and he called them musoems, <laughs> even though they're just songs. <laughs> yeah. That's well, right. and then another blast from the past. We've got our next meme, which is the Galaxy Brain meme. We have not seen uh, an official, like, old school style galaxy brain meme where it's just like you know the the small brain inside the skull and then the brain with a little bit of activity then the rays coming out of the brain and then the straight up transcendent being well we've got four different panels corresponding with each of those uh the first one being budgeting for 725 an hour which is 
obviously not something you want to do. Fighting for $15 an hour and getting the idea. And then understanding a true living wage would be at least $27 an hour. That's the rays coming out of the brain. And then organizing the proletariat to seize the means of production and abolish wage slavery is the transcendent, you know, uh, galaxy brain thing, you know. I, yeah, the equivalent of Vince McMahon falling all the way out of his chair. That's right, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And then, so our next one here, this is kind of a, a, a an update to the classic uh, Zach Galifianakis uh, looking very confused from the, or no, it's that's not, that's the other alternative version. You're thinking this is the, like, between two ferns? Yes, that's what I was thinking of. But um, no, the, the version where, like, the woman is looking very confused at all this math that's going on. So <laughs> it's captioned, forget everything you learned in college. You won't need it working here response but but i didn't go to college oh well then you're unqualified for this <laughs> and then it's four panels of the homelander from the boys looking very confused <laughs> with all that like math and geometry around him. i gotta say this shit drives me nuts as somebody who didn't go to college because everybody i know who went to college like 10 percent got a job in their specific field where they used what they learned and the rest are like yeah when i got a job they're like we don't care what you know you learn what to do here and i'm like well i could do that just because I don't have a degree in geology or whatever doesn't mean I can't learn how to use a fax machine. Or oh, but copier. John, you don't understand. It shows that you're committed to losing a ton of money uh, in exchange for no real value. Yeah, yeah. I thought my credit <laughs> score was for that, but um, <laughs> good to no, know we have multiple options. <laughs> I have an engineering degree, and I don't even use that shit anymore. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I do want to say, though, is I almost I would prefer almost the old school, the lady with all the math, just because I don't like Homelander. He's a fascist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think he's supposed to be a sympathetic character in this meme. Just confused. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, what's not confusing is our last meme. <laughs> yeah, so this one is very simple. You've just got a guy uh, putting some brush into a wood chipper, uh, wearing proper safety glasses, too, which is uh, that's a rare run. Um, and then it's just captioned in, of course, gigantic font. Why is he putting logs in the billionaire machine? <laughs> <laughs> And then all the wood chips have like a very difficult to see caption of, of WTF. <laughs> this this yeah. meme feels like like a like a boomer meme that was made by not a boomer. Like it was yeah. intentionally made to be that way. <laughs> I, I just also love the idea of updating the guillotine. It's like we have a lot more right? options available to us. Uh, the Coen brothers were very kind to make the movie Fargo <laughs> some number of That's years right. ago. And I think we should use the creativity uh, of this nation and uh, make it actually <laughs> worth a damn by chucking them in the billionaire machine. <laughs> That's right. Actually, you know, just stop referring to it as a wood chipper from now on. I don't want to ever hear anyone use those words again. Always call it the billionaire machine. Yeah, walking through my that's workshop right. being like, oh yeah, that's the billionaire press. That's the billionaire saw. That's the table billionaire saw. Uh, that's the billionaire planer. Uh, 
all right. Well, and with that, we are going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We appreciate it so much as an entirely listener-supported show. You can jump in the Discord to come and hang out with us. You can also come and listen to all of the different sequ- uh, sneak peeks of the Red Game Table episodes as Ethan posts them while he, while he edits the new Red Game Table episodes because there's a Red Game Table channel in the Discord now. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you can give us a review literally anywhere. You could write a review on John's Twitter fa- uh, Twitter page, which is yeah. at Facebook Villain. That's right. You can follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. You can listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. You can listen to Red Game Table. And then, as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody.